Welcome to the Opera Cheat Sheet. I'm Sinjin Flynn. And I'm Eric Skelly. And this week we're talking about Gaetano Donizetti's Lucia di Lammermoor, which was first produced in 1835, I believe, Eric. Indeed. Uh, this, is, uh, this is a staple of the bel canto period, which uh, basically when we're talking about bel canto, we're talking Donizetti, Rossini, or Bellini. And uh, this is far and away one of the most popular of the bel canto operas. When we talk about bel canto uh, and those three particular composers who embody this, this style, what are the, the, the markings of this style? Is it, is it the music? Is it the singing? Is it, what is it? It's about showcasing the voice and it's about vocal virtuosity, really. It doesn't uh, short the drama by any means, but music is uh, primary in bel canto and the voice is primary in bel canto. And uh, we'll hear, for instance, whenever you hear uh, a character in this opera sing an aria, it will almost always be followed by a second one. So there, it's a dual aria format. First you have what's called the cavatina, and that is a slow, languorous aria that is designed to showcase the singer's long vocal line and ability to spin out a long line on, a, on one breath and uh, to sing lyrically. And then following that immediately, there will usually be something – somebody will interrupt and then change the, the, the subject and the singer will launch into the cabaletta, which is fast and full of uh, lots of coloratura, lots of uh, runs up and down the scale and trills and uh, vocal daring do and basically just designed to let the singer show off. <laughs> so these are the hallmarks of bel canto and in Lucia de Lammermoor. We have, uh, of course, one of the classics of the bel canto repertoire. This is an opera that was based upon the novel The Bride of Lammermoor by Sir Walter Scott. Yes. And Scott's novel was set in 17th century Scotland. And Donizetti right. seems to have this penchant for British history, doesn't he? Because he'd just done these operas based on uh, Anna Bolena and Roberta Devereux right. and uh, Maria Stuarda. Exactly. And now we have 17th century Scotland. Gothic Scotland, yes, exactly, with uh, you know, the Byronic hero uh, in Edgardo and the, uh, the tragic doomed heroine in Lucia, all those, uh, those tropes from the Romantic uh, period. Lucia is the sister of Enrico. This is the Ashton family, and they are rivals with the Ravenswood family. Yes, Edgardo is from the Ravenswood family. Tell us their history, the history of these two families. Well, you sort of got a, a Scottish Romeo and Juliet, Capulets and Montagues. They're, they're rival families. Lucia's family, although they are noble, they have uh, fallen on some hard times. And Enrico, her, her brother, is... You know he's the he's the man of the family now because their parents are gone and he has to find a way to get the family's fortunes back on track. The way that he's chosen to do that is to marry Lucia off to this Lord Arthur Bucklaw, despite the fact that Lucia has other ideas about whom she wants to marry, because she has fallen in love with Edgardo and they've been meeting secretly, haven't they? Clandestinely, yes, because they're rival families and she knows that her brother would not like that one bit. 
So they've been seeing each other and falling in love with, with each other and have in fact pledged to one another that they will marry one another despite the fact that they know perfectly well that her family is not going to take that very well. <laughs> in Act One, we have this scene with Lucia and her uh, companion, Alyssa, by this fountain that is a great scene of, of premonition, isn't it? It is. She uh, she sings this, this cavatina, Regnava nel silencio, in which she talks about a specter, a ghost in the fountain that she has seen, and she becomes very sort of melancholy. And uh, and and that, as we mentioned before, is the cavatina where she spins out these long lyrical lines, uh, talking about uh, how she's seen this ghost and how upset it's made her. The thing, though, with this spectre is that this is the spectre of a girl who was killed, who was murdered by her lover. Indeed, which sort of presages what. Uh... What, what, what might happen a little bit later? Yes, indeed. Without giving too much away. <laughs> How does Enrico manage the whole situation? Lucia, whom he wants to marry, he wants him to marry Arturo. That's a, a financially significant marriage, would help restore the Ashton family finances. But she's got this attachment to Edgardo. There's a little bit of skullduggery that goes on. Well, yes, and Enrico has to be said as a bully. I mean, he is he is just a flat-out bully. He... He would like to be able to just force Lucia to marry Arturo, uh, and he he attempts to do that. And when it doesn't work, when she has clearly had her set sights on Edgardo, he resorts to subterfuge and to uh, forging a letter and letting her believe that Edgardo has has forsaken her in order to move her in the direction he wants her to go, which is to marry the man that he wants her to marry. Because we should say that Edgardo has taken leave of the country. Right. He's told Lucia that he has to go to France on state business. Right. And so in the interim, all his letters to Lucia have been intercepted by Enrico's men. Precisely. And then there is this forged letter in which he apparently renounces his love for Lucia and uh, brings and an end it. to the, uh, the engagement. Yeah, and she buys it, unfortunately, and, and acquiesces to what Enrico wants and agrees, okay, I guess I'll marry Arturo. I don't like it. I don't want to do it. And, and it has to be said that she's also nudged in that direction by the family chaplain, Raimondo. And uh, with all that pressure and with the forged letter, uh, it's, it's all, it all uh, basically weakens her resolve. And she says, okay, I guess I'll marry Arturo. And in a, a curious coincidence of timing, as soon as she signed that marriage contract, who arrives back in town? Edgardo. Edgardo. <laughs> of course he does. <laughs> and crashes the party in most spectacular fashion, which uh, then leads to one of the most famous numbers in all of opera, which is the sextet from Lucia. And the thing that's really interesting about the sextet is that it demonstrates what you can do in opera that you cannot do in spoken theater. You can have six characters all speaking at the same time, all expressing their emotions in that moment simultaneously, and you can follow every single one because the music allows you to follow individual threads. You know, decide you want to listen to Lucia, you can do that. If you want to listen to Raimondo, you can do that even though they're all singing simultaneously. Then, of course, we have one of the great scenes in opera, which is in Act 3, Lucia's mad scene. Yeah. Now, 
She has been a little bit fragile. Her mother has died fairly recently. She's been recovering from her grief over her mother's death. But now with this forced marriage to Arturo and Edgardo coming back, she's pushed over the edge. Completely. So off she goes with Arturo for her wedding night. And uh, before long, uh, the guests are all partying and partying because there's finally, there's hope on the horizon. Um, The Ashton fortunes will be restored and they're all very happy. And then Raimondo breaks in and says, oh my God, the most god-awful thing has happened. And then he relates what has in fact happened when uh, Lucia went to her bridal chamber with Arturo and... uh, he basically heard something, you know, horrible happening in there. He opened the door and there's Lucia uh, with a bloody dagger and Arturo lying dead on the floor. And then Lucia appears amongst the wedding guests. Yes, with in her blood-strained wedding dress. Il Dolce Suono is the, is the beginning of her mad scene. And she, uh, Donizetti writes this so brilliantly because what he does to indicate her fragile mental state is he has her start a melodic idea, and then she breaks off, and then she starts another one, and then she breaks that off, and then she starts another one and breaks that off. It's almost like she's incapable of reasoned thought. Her mind is completely gone. She, it, it, that's exactly right. She cannot think coherently anymore. Her mind just is just wondering. Inevitably, Edgardo, he hears a, a commotion that something is going on at Ravenswood, and he learns then that Lucia has died. Yes. And what is left for him? Nothing. (laughs) He basically says, there's nothing left for me in this world. And uh, to the the horror of the the people that are surrounding him at that moment, uh, he pulls out a dagger and stabs himself and sings a little more (laughs) before expiring. And most beautifully, it's it's a gorgeous aria that he sings. And it's, uh, it's to the tenor's credit if he can really make that scene work right after the soprano has just brought the house down with the mad scene. But a really great tenor can do it. So, Eric, what is it that makes Lucia di Lamamo so beloved? Melodic invention on Donizetti's part wed to a really gripping story and melodic invention that is very much at the service of that story and uh, brilliantly conveys the the inner uh, emotional lives of these characters. Donizetti's Lucia di Lamamo. That's this week's Opera Cheat Sheet. I'm Sinjin Flynn. And I'm Eric Skelly. Thank you for listening.